Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Muslim Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Bukulski. Today, we host Nir Eyal. Nir Eyal writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. Nir has been a lecturer in the marketing department at Stanford Graduate School of Business. He is also the author of two best-selling books that you're going to want to read. Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and the second one, which I highly suggest everybody get, is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. We live in a highly distracted society, and Nir argues, as do I, that being indistractable is maybe the greatest superpower of the coming generation. And if we can learn to be indistractable, our productivity and our effectiveness as a human goes through the roof. You guys may notice a common theme over some of the most recent podcast guests there's a lot of discussion in my life and hopefully bring value into yours about assisting in behavior change. So Nier's book, book Indistractable, has received critical acclaim, winning the Outstanding Works of Literature Award, being named one of the best books in business and leadership by Amazon and the best personal development books by Audible and the Globe and Mail in 2019. An incredible book. I've read it twice. You're going to absolutely love it. And you're going to love this conversation with Nir Eyal. Today's podcast is brought to you by realmushrooms.com. If you are a high achiever and someone looking to optimize your body, your mind, and ultimately your life, mushrooms are something you're going to want to consider adding to your routine. Lion's Mane Mushroom is a great, great addition if you're looking to optimize brain function and neurogenesis, which is the formation of your brain cells. Reishi mushroom for people who are ultimately looking to recover, support the immune system, and improve heart rate variability. Cordyceps mushroom for people looking to optimize aerobic function and endurance. And one of my favorite products now is the Five Defenders. If you're someone who likes hot chocolate, their Five Defenders hot chocolate is phenomenal. I feed it to my kids often, especially when they're coming down with it with an illness or if they feel a little bit immune compromised. I'll add in a good serving or two of uh, hot cocoa with their reishi and Real Mushrooms actually makes a product with these two things combined that I suggest everyone at least try out. I'm a huge fan. Thank you very much to Real Mushrooms for supporting the podcast. Ongoing realmushrooms.com slash Ben. Get hooked up. Today's podcast is brought to you by magbreakthrough.com. You guys know that magnesium is probably the most important supplement that I advocate to myself and all my clients, including my family. And magnesium breakthrough is seven different magnesium chelates. Why do you want seven different magnesium chelates? One, they all tend to uh, work on different tissues in the body a little bit differently. Certain ones will affect your muscular system, your nervous system, your digestive tract, and all the other organ systems in the body can be influenced through these different chelates of magnesium. My suggestion is that everyone takes these magnesium products uh, I mean, with obviously permission permission from your healthcare practitioner, always make sure you guys are getting these uh, supplements advocated by your doctor and whoever is ultimately looking after your health. Magnesiumbreakthrough.com slash muscle intelligence. Use the code muscle to get hooked up for 10 per, with 10% off and up to $200 in Black Friday gifts if you jump on it right now. So head over to Magnesium breakthrough.com slash muscle intelligence or just magnesiumbreakthrough.com. Use the code muscle to get hooked up with 10% off. Enjoy the podcast with Nir Eyal. Listen all the way to the end because he's got some really interesting stuff as we get close to the end. I'd love to just have you tell us about your path, how you came to be. Sure. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. So let's see. So I am a behavioral designer. So I help companies 
and individuals design good habits and break bad habits. So I work with uh, primarily tech companies in the education space, in the healthcare space, financial services, any kind of company that wants to build good habits in people's lives through the products they use. And uh, that was based on my first book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products that I taught at Stanford Graduate School of Business for a few years, and then later at the Hassel Platner Institute of Design. And then more recently, I wrote a book about the other side, about how to break bad habits. And that book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And the reason I wrote that book is that, you know, there's this saying, research is me-search, uh, or you teach best what you most need to learn. And boy, did I need to learn how to manage distraction because... Uh, as I was progressing in my career and uh, I was getting some some business success and finding that my life was becoming busier and busier, I had less time to do the things that were really important to me. And so uh, there was one specific instance that made me uh, reconsider my relationship with distraction. I was with my daughter one afternoon and we had this beautiful day planned. And I had this book of activities that dads and daughters could do together. And one of the activities in the book was to ask each other this question, that if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember that question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said because in that moment, I decided to look at my stupid phone and uh, I don't even know what I was looking at, but for some reason, I decided to check my phone. But by the time I looked up, my daughter had left the room. She was gone because she realized that I was sending her a message that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And she went to go play with some toy outside. And that's when I realized I'd blown it. Uh, and it wasn't just with my daughter. If I'm honest with you, Ben, it would happen at work when I would say, okay, I'm definitely going to work on this big project. And yet 20, 30, 40 minutes later, I was doing everything but that big project. It would happen when I'd say, oh, today I'm definitely going to exercise. I'm definitely going to eat right. But I wouldn't and I didn't. And I discovered that, you know, if I really... Uh, face the facts that I knew what to do. Uh, I just wasn't doing it, right? And I think that's the case with most of us these days. We all we all basically know what to do. Who doesn't know, you know, that if you want to get in shape, you have to diet and exercise. Who doesn't know that if you want better relationships, you have to be fully present with the people you love. Who, who doesn't know that if you want to be better at your job, you have to do the hard work that, that other people don't want to do. We know these things, and frankly, if you don't know them, Google them, <laughs> right? It's at your fingertips. Ooh, you, there's no excuse to say you don't know what to do. What we don't know is how to stop getting in our own way. We don't know how to stop getting distracted. And so that's when I realized, boy, if I wanted a superpower, it would be the superpower of being indistractable, the power to do what I said I'm going to do. Because I, I can't think of a more important macro skill. You know, if it's if you find you're not reading the books you want to read, if you find that you're not spending enough quality time with the people you love, if you find that you're not as productive as you know you could be at work, the reason likely is that you're not doing the things you know you should be doing. And I wanted to know, wait a minute, why the heck is that? <laughs> why is it that despite knowing what I need to do, I wasn't doing it. And so I wanted to go into the deeper psychology behind how we become indistractable. That's amazing. And one of the reasons I took such a great interest is I coach coaches and I coach uh, other athletes. And as you know, uh, I could write the best workout plan in the world, the best diet plan in the world, even the best lifestyle design strategy. And 90% of people will fall short or fail because they ultimately need to implement some type of behavior change practices. So what I kind of say about myself now is I have to become a behavior change expert. If I'm going to help people transform their life, writing the best program doesn't do anything unless they're willing and able to follow through. And that's where I came across your book and just realized that this, there was so much value in this and, and helping myself first, obviously, and then my clients become, um, you know, what I, what I would have said on the other end is focused, but your word indistractable is, fits it perfectly. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, 
you know, when we think about it, what's the number one reason we fail? What, what, what's the number one cause of failure? It's pretty obvious. It's quitting. Yep. Right. That's why we fail. It's it very rarely is it circumstances that uh, are other than for some one reason or another, we stopped. Not that it's always a bad idea to give up. Sometimes it's the right thing to do. But it's incredible how many of our goals in life we don't get to just because we quit. We got distracted. We did something else, even though we know that's what we want. And so I think it's so important if we are to achieve our goals and especially to help others uh, by coaching them to their goals is, is to understand the deeper psychology behind uh, how, how do we stay on track? How do we just not quit? Yeah. So in your book, you give us three, um, I guess, components of um, you know being indistractable, like the three um, pieces, I guess, that you need to, to understand in order to overcome distraction. I'd love to have you walk through those. Sure. So uh, the best place to start is to uh, really understand this word distraction. Uh, it's one of those words that I thought I understood, but the more I uh, dove into the research, I didn't really understand. And the best way to, to to get it is to understand what is the antonym, what's the opposite of distraction. So if you ask most people, what's the opposite of distraction, they'll tell you it's focus, right? I don't want to be distracted. I want to be focused, but that's not exactly right. And if you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction traction and distraction. Traction by definition is any action that pulls you towards what you say you were going to do. Traction and distraction come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do. Uh, things that move you closer to your values, things that help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. Distraction, on the other hand, is any action that pulls you further away from what you plan to do, further away from your goals, further away from your values, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this isn't just semantics. This is super important because I would argue that any action can be traction or distraction based on one word. And that one word is forethought. That, as Dorothy Parker said, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So what we find people doing these days is moralizing and medicalizing perfectly normal behavior and feeling totally guilty about having a good time because they, they don't do it with intent. So I would argue if you want to play video games, do it. You want to be on Facebook. Don't let these tech critics tell you that, oh, it's melting your brain and you know, you playing video games and scrolling social media and watching YouTube videos. That's bad. That's, you know, that's melting your brain, but oh, me watching football. That's okay. Why? <laughs> Anything right. you want to do with your time is fine. You want to paint, you want to take a walk, you want to meditate, you want to you know, play a video game, great, do it. But do it on your schedule and with intent as opposed to someone else's schedule and someone else's values, right? That's the key is to do these things with intent. Anything you plan to do is automatically traction. Conversely, anything that is not what you said you were going to do, anything that you are not doing with intent is distraction. And what we have to watch out for is the kind of distraction that tricks us because we don't even know it's happening. Let me give you an example. For years, when I got into work, I would sit down at my desk and I would say, okay, now I'm going to work on that big project. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm not going to procrastinate. Here I go. I'm going to get started right now. But first, let me check some email, right? Let me just scroll that Slack channel. Let me just do a few, you know, easy work-related tasks on my to-do list just to get started, just to, you know, get some momentum going. And I thought that I was being productive because it was work-related stuff. And what I didn't realize is that that is the most dangerous, most pernicious form of distraction, the distraction that tricks you into doing the easy and urgent work at the expense of the hard and important work you have to do to move your life and career forward. So just because it's a work-related task yep. doesn't mean it's not distraction. That's the worst kind of distraction because you don't even realize it's happening. So you've got traction, you've got distraction, 
Then you've got the two types of triggers. Okay. We've got the external triggers. These are the usual suspects, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment that can lead us towards traction or distraction. But it turns out that even people, even though people tend to blame external triggers first, they're only 10% of the reason we get distracted. Did you know that that only 10% of the time we get distracted? It's because of our external environment. So what's the other 90%? The other 90% of the time that we go off track, it's not because of what's happening outside of us, but rather it's about what's happening inside of us. These are called internal triggers. Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape. Loneliness, boredom, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety. We don't like the way these things feel. And so we look for escape from this discomfort with some kind of distraction. So distraction is not some kind of moral failing. It's almost never any kind of you know, problem. It's not anything that you need a diagnosis for, a pill for, for the vast majority of people. Now we do have a little disclaimer that about 3% of the population do have ADHD, but 97% of the people don't. So overwhelmingly the chances are there's nothing, you know, there's nothing clinically wrong with you. It's simply that we don't have the skill set to become indistractable. So now that we have these four points on our compass, we just work through these four steps. Step number one, is mastering the internal triggers. If you don't master these emotions, these reasons that we get distracted in the first place, the uncomfortable emotional states, they will become your master. So you have to do that first, master the internal triggers. Step number two is make time for traction. Can't tell you how many people, myself included, used to complain about how distracted I was and I didn't do this and I didn't finish that and did you see what's happening in the news and Twitter this and Facebook that and all I would do is moan, moan, moan and complain. But when you looked at my calendar, it's pretty much blank, right? I get this from people all the time. I'm so distracted. Great. Let me see what you got distracted from. What do you mean? Show me your calendar. Oh, um, there's pretty much nothing on my calendar. Maybe a dentist appointment or you know a meeting or something. Well, here's the thing. If your day isn't planned, you're bound to get distraction, distracted. Of course you are. You can't say you got distracted unless you know what you got distracted from. Right. So you have to make time for traction. If you don't plan your time, somebody's going to plan it for you. So that's step two. And I show you exactly how to do that. Step number three is to hack back the external triggers. You know, even though they're about 10% of the reason we get distracted, it's still something we can do something about. And this is, this is pretty easy stuff, right? We just need to systematically go through, of course, the usual suspects like your phone, your computer. That's kindergarten stuff. You don't need to buy a book to tell you to turn off notifications. Of course, you should be turning off notifications that don't serve you. But what about the other external triggers that nobody talks about? How much time are we spending getting distracted by stupid meetings that don't need to be called? How much time are we spending on emails that distract us? Even our kids, right? We love them to death, but they can be incredibly distracting, especially because so many of us are working from home these days. So I show you how to systematically go through each and every one of these external triggers and hack back. The fourth and final step to becoming indistractable is to prevent distractions with pacts. Pacts are pre-commitment devices. This is where we decide in advance to erect a firewall, if you will, against distraction so that if these other three techniques fail, which from time to time they will, okay, there's a backstop. There's a last line of defense to protect us from getting distracted. And it's by using these four steps in concert, mastering internal triggers, making time for traction, hacking back external triggers, and preventing distraction with packs, this is how anyone can become indistractable. So walk me through mastering internal triggers, because that does not sound like a small task. Yeah. Now, this is the most important task, which is why it's, it's put first. And in order to explain why this is so important, we have to actually back up a second and ask ourselves why uh, why do we do everything, right? Not just why do we not do what we say we're going to do. Plato's, uh, that, did I mention Plato, by the way? Nope. Yeah. Okay, so this, this, this was something I was kind of surprised to, to learn in the research, that people tend to think that uh, distraction is something new. 
right? That uh, Facebook caused distraction and Netflix caused distraction, YouTube caused distraction. No, <laughs> that in fact, Plato, the Greek philosopher, talked about this very same problem 2,500 years ago. He called it akrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interest. So if Plato was complaining about it 2,500 years ago, it can't be caused by the internet, right? This is something, this is part of the human condition. And it's, it's actually a really interesting question. If we know what to do and we know it's in our best interest, why don't we just freaking do it? Right? You know, or, or why do we not do certain, uh, why are we unable to restrain from doing certain things? You know, eating that unhealthy food if we're trying to watch our weight or whatever the case might be, uh, smoking that cigarette or uh, checking uh, our newsfeed when we should be doing something else. Why is it that despite knowing what to do, we do things against our better interest? This is what Plato asked. And to answer that question, we have to dive deeper. We have to ask ourselves, why do we do anything and everything? What is the seat of human motivation? Most people, if you ask them what motivates humans, they'll tell you some version of carrots and sticks, right? We've all heard this before, that everything we do is about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Jeremy Bentham said this, uh, Sigmund Freud said this, right? It's a classic uh, carrot and stick analogy. Turns out, neurologically speaking, this is not true. That neurologically, everything you do, everything you do is about one thing. And that is the desire to escape discomfort. Everything you do, even the pursuit of pleasurable sensations. Think about it. Wanting, craving, lusting, desire. There's a reason we say love hurts. It does. Because in our brain, the way the brain gets you to do stuff is by making you feel uncomfortable enough to go do it. Even the pursuit of pleasurable sensations, wanting to feel good is itself psychologically destabilizing. This is called the homeostatic response. Physiologically, this is common sense, right? If you uh, go outside and it's cold, the brain says, ooh, this doesn't feel good. You should put on a coat. Uh, if you walk back in, you get hot. The brain says, that doesn't feel good. Take it off. If uh, you uh, are hungry, the brain says, that's not comfortable. You should eat. And if you eat too much, oh, now you feel stuffed then the brain says, stop eating. So that makes perfect sense physiologically. The same goes for our psychological sensations. When you're lonely, check Facebook. When you're uncertain, before you scan your brain, just go Google it. When you're bored, oh, lots of solutions to boredom, right? Whether it's uh, stock prices, sports scores, um, uh, the news, right? Let's, let's worry about somebody's problem 5,000 miles away so we don't have to think about what's happening inside our own heads. So understanding this fact that all human behavior is precipitated by a desire to escape discomfort. What we must therefore conclude is that time management is pain management because it doesn't matter if it's too much booze, too much food, too much football, too much Facebook, it doesn't matter. Any distraction, any reason that we go off track, we are going off track for one reason and that is the desire to escape discomfort. So you have to understand those internal triggers and master them or as I mentioned, they will become your master. So Understanding that fact that time management is pain management, we have to ask ourselves, how do we manage this discomfort? What techniques can we use to, 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 to make sure that when we feel that discomfort, we don't try and escape it, right? We don't try and drink our problems away. We don't try and porn our problems away. We don't try and scroll our problems away, but rather we use that discomfort as rocket fuel to propel us towards traction rather than trying to escape it with distraction. And that's what indistractable people do. Well, how do we begin to do that? So you mentioned the word triggers, and I don't want to kind of gloss over that one. So we have these internal triggers, we have external triggers. And I'm curious, because like becoming aware of a trigger is one thing, right? So maybe we could say, you know, meditation, some type of, you know, mindfulness practice is maybe a good way to start becoming aware of all these internal triggers. But yeah. how does one start to overcome the unconscious drive to act on them? 
Sure. Um, so, so there, there are many ways. Uh, and the idea in the book is not to say this is the way, and this is kind of what drives me crazy about the meditation cult these days that, uh, you meet these people that say meditation is the solution for everything, right? Like, uh, uh, you're anxious, meditate. Uh, you, you have a canker sore, meditate. Uh, you know, your, your boss sucks, meditate. And that's not always good advice that there's kind of, you know, there's the kind of problems you can do something about, in which case, fix it, right? <laughs> fix the source of the discomfort. You have a, a crappy boss at work. Well, like go look for another job, right? <laughs> like you, you've got to figure out what is in your control. Do the things you can do something about it. You can't always meditate your problems away, but for some things you can't do anything about, right? Part of being a grown up is that sometimes life is not very comfortable, right? There's, there's discomfort that comes with life. And so that's where we can use other tactics. So what I wanted to do was to give people a, 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 a many arrows in their quiver that they can pull out whenever they feel discomfort and they can use these techniques uh, to help master discomfort. So it's not that there's one magic bullet, but what I, let me give you a few very practical tips that you can use right now. So uh, the first thing that psychologists tell us that we can do is to become aware of those sensations, as you mentioned, right? So by looking at when you get distracted, if, if you can catch yourself, it's very difficult to do it before you, you, you get distracted, but if you can look at what happens after you get distracted, if you can pause for a minute, right? Let's say you said, oh, I'm going to work on that blog post or I'm going to finish that RFP or I'm going to make those sales calls. And for whatever reason, you didn't do them when you said you were going to do them. I want you to pause for a quick second and ask yourself, what was the preceding sensation? What was I feeling before I got distracted? Was it that I was dreading doing the, the work? Was it that I was uh, bored? Was it that I was uh, stressed? Was it I was anxious? Because remember, the reason we don't do what we say we're going to do overwhelmingly is because we don't feel like it. I don't feel like working out. I don't feel like making a healthy meal. I don't feel like doing those sales calls. Whatever the case might be, that is the number one reason. It's a feeling. So you have to be able to identify that feeling and, and just write it down. It's amazing. Studies find that simply writing down that sensation, I was bored, I was stressed, I was anxious, is a wonderful way, even if it's after the fact, is a wonderful way to, to start catching it in the future. Now, the next step is to get curious, not contemptuous, okay, about that sensation. What many people do is they fall into two camps. We call them the blamers or the shamers. The blamers, when they get distracted, they blame things outside themselves, right? I couldn't exercise because uh, it's raining outside or the gym is closed or blah, blah, blah. They'll find a million excuses why they couldn't get any exercise in. Or I, I, I wanted to do that project, but you know, Facebook and Twitter and blah, blah, blah. They'll blame stuff outside themselves. But as we saw, as Plato showed us, this is not a new problem, right? There is no magical time before these things existed. You will always find distraction as part of the human condition. So blaming things outside yourself, that's futile. Conversely, what other people do is they shame themselves. They, they don't blame things outside themselves. They think that somehow they are broken. They are wrong. They, they say silly things like, oh, I'm no good at time management or I have a short attention span. They come up with these, these cockamamie stories that they concoct for themselves in their heads about that they have some kind of temperament that prevents them from doing. Oh, I'm a Sagittarius, <laughs> right? Like all kinds of crazy reasons that have nothing to do with reality. They're just ways to shame yourself into thinking so that somehow you're deficient so you don't actually have to do the thing. Now, that doesn't work because when we feel shame, that is a very uncomfortable sensation. That's a, that's a, a, that's a negative valence state. And so what do we do when we feel uncomfortable, when we feel emotionally uh, uh, distressed? We look for more discomfort to take our mind off of that feeling. So when I used to be clinically obese, 
I didn't just eat because I was hungry. I ate when I was bored. I ate when I was lonely. I ate when I felt ashamed about how much I had just eaten, right? That's why I was trying to escape this discomfort. So we don't want to be blamers. We don't want to be shamers. We want to be what we call claimers. Claimers claim responsibility for what they do in response, hence the term responsibility, to these actions, or sorry, to these urges. So a, a common misconception is that you can somehow control your feelings, control your urges. That is not true. You cannot control, for example, the urge to sneeze. Once you have the urge to sneeze, it already happened, right? You already had that feeling. You already had that urge. What you can control is how you will respond to that urge. Are you going to sneeze all over everyone and get them sick? Or are you going to cover your face and do the responsible thing and you, use the tissue? So it's the same way with our feelings, right? We can either respond to that feeling in a, in a way that leads to traction or a way that leads to distraction. And that is where we have this moment of choice. Now, how do we cultivate that? I'm going I'm to give you a technique I, I use almost every single day. And this comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. And this is called the 10-minute rule. The 10-minute rule says that you can give in to any distraction. Okay, any distraction. If it's, uh, I, I want to eat that piece of chocolate cake uh, that if I'm on a diet, uh, I, I'm going to, you know, I want to check the news even though I need to do some work, whatever the case might be. You can give in to that distraction in 10 minutes. Not right now, in 10 minutes. Why is this technique so effective? Because what we are finding is that abstinence can backfire. And you probably heard this, right? Like, I'm not sure how old you are, but I remember the 1980s and we were all told, just say no. Right. Like that was the slogan. Just say no. And so people, I think, adopt this idea of, hey, if I if I if I want to prevent myself from doing something, I'll just tell myself, no, don't do it. Well, this oftentimes backfires. And here's why that telling yourself not to do something is like pulling on a rubber band. When you pull on a rubber band, you pull, 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 pull until you can't pull anymore. And then eventually you can't pull anymore. And when you let go, the rubber band doesn't go where it started. No, it goes. It ricochets across the room right? And that's what happens when we tell ourselves not to do something. Don't eat the chocolate cake. Don't check social media. Don't play the video game. Don't, 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 don't. Okay, fine. I will. And by the time you let go of that rubber band and, and oblige and do the thing you're trying to resist doing, that relief of not having to tell yourself no anymore feels good, right? Because it's the relief of that discomfort. Remember that, that all human motivation is about a desire to escape discomfort. So if you find something that poof, takes away the discomfort of telling yourself no, you are essentially training your brain to do that again and again and again. So in the future, you're not going to tell yourself no, you're going to tell yourself not yet. Big difference. So now one of these techniques you can learn to, to master these internal triggers is when you want to give into the distraction, you say, okay, yeah, I can do that thing. I can check email. I can, you know, play a video game. I can, you know, check sports scores, whatever it is that you find is your, is your distraction in 10 minutes. So here's what I want you to do. You take out your phone, you, you, you set a timer for 10 minutes and you put the phone down and now you have a choice to make. You can either get back to the task at hand, whatever that task at hand might be, whatever you plan to do with your time, or you can do what psychologists call surf the urge. Surfing the urge, it acknowledges that these emotions, these urges, these feelings are transitory, even though that's not what we think in the moment. When you're angry, you think you're always going to be angry. When you're sad, when you're lonely, you think that that sensation is always going to be there, but that's never the case, right? That these emotions, even though we don't, somehow we trick ourselves into thinking we're always going to feel that way, we know they're transitory. They're like waves. They crest and then they subside. So your job for those 10 minutes is to simply surf the urge, right? With curiosity, not contempt. You're not going to beat yourself up. You're not going to be a blamer or a shamer. 
You're just going to surf the urge and explore it with curiosity. So sometimes, you know, when I write, so I've been writing now professionally for uh, over a decade. Writing is never easy. Okay. I don't know what people are talking about when they say, I want to get into the habit of writing. That, that makes no sense to me because a habit is something you do with little or no conscious thought. How do you write with little or no conscious thought? It's hard freaking work. All I want to do when I write, and I've written two bestsellers and countless articles, all I want to do is go check the you know social media or email or go play with my daughter, go do anything but the writing. It's hard, right? But I, I want to do it. That's, that's part of my value system. That's what I said I'm going to do. So I'm going to do it. That's traction for me. So I'll set the timer for 10 minutes and I'll just take a breath. Say, okay, what's going on here? What am I feeling? What's the sensation? What, well, you know, I, I really want this to be a good article and I'm a little bit worried about that people aren't going to like it or what if it's, you know, nobody reads it or what if I don't cite the research properly or whatever. You know, so I start thinking to myself, where is this coming from? And, and it's important to learn how to talk to yourself in a new way. You know, what I used to do was to blame and shame as opposed to learning to talk to yourself with self-compassion. So as opposed to thinking, oh, a, a real author wouldn't feel this way. I say, no, actually, this is what it means to get better at something, right? It's because this is hard work that I'm able to do something that other people aren't able to do. That's what makes my work special, right? And it's because I care about it so much that I feel this discomfort. So you see how I shifted that conversation completely in my head by offering myself self-compassion and by learning to have that kind of conversation. And we went through about six different techniques you can use here. By learning these techniques, what you're doing is essentially building your capacity for self-efficacy. You are teaching yourself, actually, wait a minute, I am pretty good with time management because look, the 10 minutes were up and I'm working on the task I said I was going to work on. I didn't get distracted. And then the 10 minute rule becomes the 12 minute rule, becomes the 15 minute rule, becomes the 20 minute rule. And what you're doing is essentially showing yourself that, yeah, you can do this. You can become indistractable. What percentage of the time do you actually not do the task after 10 minutes versus doing it? About 10%. So it works about 90% of the time. I would say nine right. times out of 10, I'm, uh, when the clock strikes and the 10 minutes are up, I'm, I'm back, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of, of uh, writing something and it's interesting and I'm back at, at work. Uh, one time out of 10, I said, ah, you know what? Pfft, I'm just not feeling it. Okay, I'll, I'm going to take a little break. So is the clock an essential part of that? Because my brain just went to when you said it, I was like, well, the way that I would do it is like, I'm just going to kind of like go do something else for 10 minutes and then I come back. I usually ask myself to move. I'll do 10 minutes of movement. And when I come back, the feeling is usually completely different. So, but how, how essential is that clock? So the, the tricky part, you mean during the 10 minutes? Mm -hmm. The tricky part is I don't want you to go too far away from getting back to the thing you want to do. Right. So if in my case, it's writing at my laptop, but now I, I take a, you know, I take a little stroll and, oh my gosh, I'm in the kitchen and you know what, maybe I'll make a cup of coffee and look, there's a snack. It's yeah. going to be very difficult for me to get back to my desk to write. <laughs> So one of the, the habits that I'm often trying to break with people is, is um, inappropriate eating or maybe binge eating or, or snacking or things like that. So the idea of like leaving the environment sometimes is a better one. Maybe. Actually, I'd love to hear how you would approach something like that. For, for how do you prevent the snacking? Well, so, so someone who's trying to, uh, you know, they're trying to lose weight and maybe they have mm -hmm. unconscious eating habits. So I kind of use the same principle, to, you know, 10 minutes, but instead of like, you know, setting a clock, I'll just say, Hey, just go for a 10 minute walk. And when you come back, the, mm. the urge to eat that food is, is removed. Is that a similar yep. thought? Totally. So this works just as well with chocolate cake as scrolling Facebook, that if you can yeah. give yourself that, that, that uh, space to surf the urge to just let, let some time pass nine times out of 10, uh, especially when you take yourself, you know, in this case, because what you're, so I'm trying to stick with the behavior I'm trying to do what you're describing by preventing someone from, from or encouraging someone not to snack 
is you're trying to get them to not do a behavior. And in which case I would say, leave the kitchen, right? Like go out of the place where that you see the external triggers uh, for, for those 10 minutes. And then if you still want it, you can, you can go back. <laughs> I think that yeah. that would be a more appropriate use. Even better would be to, you know, remove those, uh, those external triggers from your house altogether. I think it's torture when uh, you're trying to diet and you've got, you know, the pop tarts and the Cheetos and all the junk food in the house. It makes it much, much more difficult. So if you can remove the external triggers, by the way, this applies to our tech distractions just much as it does to our food distractions. You know, when we think about our techno clutter, you know, all the notifications, the pings, the dings, all the crap that, uh, that people have on their desktops and their phones, all that stuff can lead to distraction just as, you know, having junk food in your cabinets can. I'm curious how you've started implementing this with your daughter. So it sounds like it'd be a superpower to teach a child to be indistractable. And I'm curious what age your daughter is and then maybe what age you think it's appropriate to start helping young people implement these practices. Yeah, so this is this is the skill of the century, because if you think that the world is distracting now, uh, just wait a few decades, it's only going to become more distracting with virtual reality and augmented reality and who knows what other realities. As technology becomes more pervasive and persuasive, it's going to be increasingly important to raise kids who are indistractable. So this is the skill of the century, because uh, I, I really think there will be a bifurcation between people who let their time and their attention, their lives be controlled by others and people who say, nope, I am indistractable. I decide for myself how I spend my time and attention. So how do you do this? So the most important advice I can give you, if you want to raise indistractable kids, is to be indistractable yourself. I can't tell you how many times I talk to parents and they say, my kid won't stop playing Fortnite and whatever, Minecraft and this and that. And meanwhile, they're telling me this while they're checking email, <laughs> right? So you have to set a good example because you see, kids come pre-installed with a hypocrisy detection device. Every kid has this, that if they see you doing something hypocritical, oh boy, they love it. <laughs> they love it. And they note it. So we have to become indistractable ourselves. And it's okay to tell people, uh, to tell kids you're struggling. It's all right to say, look, I, I'm going on this journey with you. I am learning how to become indistractable too. And what we do is essentially share with them the same exact four techniques, right? It's the same thing. Master the internal triggers. Make time for traction, hack back external triggers, prevent distraction with packs. You can start teaching a kid how to do this at five, six years old, right? And, and I think it's actually super important to do so because people uh, tend to fall into two categories. Either they don't care about this stuff. They don't pay attention to their kids, you know, uh, media use, and they're not aware of all the tech they're using, which is, I think, a minority of people, or they freak out, right? And they, they say, no more Xbox, no more computers, no more this and that, which is totally stupid because... Exactly what interfaces do you think your kids are going to use to get jobs in the future? They're going to need to be tech literate, <laughs> right? So we don't want to freak them out and tell them, oh, technology is melting your brain. Because first of all, you look like an idiot because that's not true, right? The, this research doesn't support it. And your kids know it. It's like when our parents told us, you know, don't do drugs. Drugs are bad. Drugs are going to make you, you know, melt your brain. And then, you, you, you know, you try some. You're like, well, my brain's not melted. I'm fine, right? <laughs> like there's, you know, there's, it, I would much rather people be honest with, with us about the effect these things have than to try and scare us. And then your kids, you lose all credibility with your kids when you make, you know, stupid claims like they make in the Social Dilemma movie and things like that. So, so it's important to, to, to show them how to use this stuff in a way that's constructive, right? We want them to use tech, but in a way that serves them as a, opposed to a way that, uh, that, uh, that they serve the technology. So what's different in terms of um, how we become indistractable and how our kids become indistractable is really with that, that internal trigger phase. That it's super important. I think the most, probably the one of the most important chapters in the book, if you have kids, is how to raise indistractable kids. Because I talk about 
these how the internal triggers that our kids have are so different from the ones that we as adults have. That's great. Um, so switching gears a little bit, you wrote the book Hooked, and I'm super curious to have you kind of unravel all of the layers of. I don't want to use the word manipulation, all the layers of influence that, that companies are using ultimately to encourage continuing behavior. So if you wouldn't mind switching gears a little bit, telling the audience a little bit about uh, you know, again, your, your, your past there and then what that looks like within hopefully conscious businesses. Sure, absolutely. So yeah, Hooked was about how to build good habits. And uh, the idea was to democratize the techniques from you know, the best in the business, the companies who are so good at capturing our attention, like Netflix and Amazon and Google and Facebook, et cetera. Uh, the idea was, you know, why, why should these companies be the only ones who can use these techniques? What if we could use them for good, right? What if we could help people exercise more and eat healthier and save money and connect with loved ones using the exact same tactics? And so that's, that's what Hooked is all about. Uh, it's mostly geared towards people building products. There's definitely a, a, a tilt towards tech products. Um, but it, it can actually be used for any type of product that is used with sufficient frequency. So the, the cutoff is really a week's time or less that in order to change consumer habits, the behavior has to occur within a week's time or less. And of course, the more frequently it occurs, the more likely it is to form a consumer habit. So the, the, the book is about these four part, this four part model, the trigger, the action, the reward and the investment. And once you see these four steps, you, you can't unsee them. They're, they're kind of in everything that you find habit forming, whether it's, you know, why are we obsessed with spectator sports? Uh, what makes a good movie? Uh, why do we watch TV series on Netflix? You know, all these things, ha gambling is a great one. You know, all these things have hooks incorporated into them. Uh, and then, of course, uh, that's been dialed up a notch when it comes to many of the, the, the devices we use are specifically designed to get you hooked. Not that, I mean, it sounds sinister, but I don't think it is. It's, in fact, we want these products to be engaging, right? I mean, we, we want Netflix shows to be interesting and fun to watch. We want our phones, our iPhones to be user-friendly. That's what makes them good. <laughs> but of course, the, the price we pay, the, the price of progress is that uh, these products that are designed to be so engaging, we have to learn how to use them appropriately, right? I mean, if, 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 this is the small price that we get for the fact that we can talk you know, instantaneously over video calls. Uh, if you would have shown me this technology when I was a kid, I would, this would be science fiction. And here we are using it right now for free. <laughs> so the price of all these amazing gadgetry and, and incredible technology is that, hey, you know what? Uh, we have to learn a few new rules for how to use them properly. Yeah, that's great. So I'd love to have you walk through, if you wouldn't mind, some of the actual tactics and strategies companies are using. A lot of the audience that we have here are coaches and people ultimately who are uh, impacting behavior change. So my brain went into how we could potentially use some of these things in a digital coaching program to get people you know, encouraged to do things more frequently. Yeah, yeah. So this is where we have to under, first start with what is the habit we're trying to create. And so it depends on, um, you know, the, what is a, a habit that benefits both the user and the company that it's this isn't, uh, this isn't a coercion. It's not about getting people to do something they don't want to do. It's about persuasion. It's about helping people do things that they themselves want to do but for lack of good product design, don't do. So that's really where we apply this stuff. So um, uh, I'll give you an example. Do you know FitBod, for example? Do you know this uh, app? I've heard the name. Okay, yeah. So this is an app that, uh, it's funny, I, I used to really um, uh, kind of bemoan how bad fitness apps were. And I, I even wrote an article a few years ago called Why Your Fitness App is Making You Fat, because I was so frustrated with how poorly designed they were. 
And then uh, somebody sent me this app, FitBod, and I, I I checked it out. I was really impressed by it. It did such a good job of of uh, of, of what I thought was the hook model. And I actually sent them an email through the app, and I said, "Have you by chance read my book?" And they wrote me back like thirty seconds later, and they said, "Yes, we read your book, and we built the the app around your your uh, hook model." And so here here's the hook model. The hook model starts with an internal trigger, an internal trigger we talked about earlier. It's that uncomfortable emotional state. And what FitBod goes after, it's not the person who's on the couch and has never worked out before. They want to go after the person who goes to the gym. This is the kind of person I used to be, but has no idea what to do, right? So I would go to the gym and these muscle heads seemed to know what they were doing. And here I was, you know, I had no clue and I had to figure it out. So uh, so the, the internal trigger is that uncertainty you feel, that discomfort of what the heck do I do? So you open this app, the action is to just, you know, hit one button. And then the third step is the variable reward phase. And this is kind of the, the engine, the fuel of the hook model. A variable reward is something that is uncertain. It's a mystery. It's, it's, it provides uh, some bit of, of variability uh, that causes you to focus and engage. So here, you know, for example, on, on Facebook, it's when you scroll the feed, you're never quite sure what you're going to see, right? What do the comments say? How many likes does something get? There's a lot of variability. It's almost like a slot machine. Uh, and in FitBod, they use the same dynamic because they create a workout for you in real time. Now, where it gets really interesting is the fourth phase of the hook model is the investment phase, where the user puts something into the product to make it better with use. So, you know, when you think about digital media, it's every time you like something, comment something, share something, follow something, they're building an algorithm, uh, they're, they're, they're loading that data into an algorithm that makes it better and better with use. Well, in FitBot, every time you enter your exercise, how many reps, how many sets, which exercise you did, how much weight, they will pre-generate the next workout for you based on your last workout, based on this machine learning that they have that says, oh, you know, you did this much weight on your pecs last time, uh, don't work out upper body this time, work out, you know, these muscles next time. So it, it actually gets better and better the more you use it. And because of that, it becomes something that hooks the user to something very healthy, to a healthy habit of exercising. That's brilliant. And you could definitely see how that could, be, that could go in both directions. I think a lot of us are aware of the uh, maybe insidious nature of some of the apps that there are. But again, or at least we're told, as you, you brought, up, brought up the social dilemma, we're told that it's an insidious nature. And this is where I really want to delineate, right? Is I think it's important for people to realize, is it potentially possible for you to be manipulated and sucked in? Yes. But as you're kind of so eloquently stating, like you have to train your brain to not allow yourself to go there. And I think this is why it's important to bring someone like yourself on who ultimately is an expert in helping people delineate what is actually going on, making them make those conscious decisions themselves. Yeah. And what, what I'm advocating for is certainly not, hey, use more technology. Well, quite the opposite, right? If, if these products aren't serving you, screw them. Stop using them or, or dial back your use. What I'm arguing for is nuance, that it's not about, oh, tech good, tech bad. It's about how you use the product, how much you use the product, and what you would be doing instead of using the product, right? Uh, you know, as I mentioned, you know, the, 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 the technology did not create distraction. I, I guarantee you the same people who spend hours and hours on Facebook a generation ago were watching hours and hours of stupid television shows or whatever else, you know? So it's really about choosing how you will spend your time in advance. There's nothing wrong with using these technologies. They're not evil. We don't need to ban them. We need to figure out how to use them appropriately and use them in a way that serves us as opposed to us serving them. Yeah. Do you have any daily practices? And it's, by the way, it's also a matter of degree, right? <laughs> like a little bit of time, you, you know, every behavior, if it's done to an extreme, if it's, we, we all know people in the fitness space, I'm sure you, you certainly do, that are addicted to exercise. 
Now, is, is exercise addictive? Well, it depends, right? It depends how much you're using it, who is using it, uh, and what you would be doing instead of using it. So if the alternative is, you know, uh, taking drugs, well, then, yeah, I'd much rather you get addicted to exercise versus, you know, harmful substances. But it, but it's also how much you're using. So if you're always in the gym, if you if you neglect other areas in your life, your family, your your relationships, your work, because you're obsessed uh, with 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 what would otherwise be a healthy behavior, that can also be an addiction. Yeah. Do you have any daily practices that uh, you advocate? Maybe I know it's a general statement, but advocate to help people. Um, become indistracted. So maybe a daily practice or a daily system you've created around phone use or computer mm-hmm. use or anything like that that comes to mind. You're like, yeah, this is something I do every day yeah. that seems to be pretty effective. Yeah. So step number one is master those internal triggers. And we talked about a few of the techniques. There's there's several more that you can use. The second step is to make time for traction, which we talked a little bit, but from a daily basis is incredibly important. So there have been thousands of peer-reviewed studies that show that the most effective thing you can do, or one of the most effective things you can do uh, to manage your time is to set what's called an implementation intention, which is just a fancy way of saying planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. So that's why we talked about earlier about if you know if, if you don't plan your day, uh, somebody's going to plan it for you, that you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So the daily practice is scheduling your day, right? You should not have free time uh, unless it's scheduled. Now it sounds like an oxymoron, right? How can you have free time that's, that's, that's scheduled? Yeah, you can do that, right? I want you to make time for the fun things that you enjoy in your life so that you know that you can enjoy them without guilt. What's so sad is that so many people out there, myself included, I used to uh, come home from work and have, have a really busy day. And then even when all I wanted to do was you know watch TV or hang out with my daughter or do something fun and relaxing, I was still thinking about all the stuff I still didn't do. Right, all the stuff sitting on my to-do list, which is one of the reasons why to-do lists are so terrible for your personal productivity, is because I was guilt. I felt guilty about all the stuff I still didn't accomplish. Whereas, if you time box, if you do this daily practice of planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it, including the fun stuff, it's guilt-free. I bet you maybe one percent of your listeners have ever experienced the sheer bliss of real leisure, knowing that whatever it is you're doing is exactly what you plan to do. Because if I said I'm going to watch a movie. Uh, that now is traction because it's on my calendar. So that's probably the best daily practice you could possibly adopt is to plan your time. And I mean, down to the minute, it sounds extreme, right? It sounds like, oh, I, I, I can't plan down every minute. I need to be spontaneous. Okay, you know what? That's for children and retirees. <laughs> if you're not accomplishing the things you want to accomplish in your day, you've got to plan the time. Yeah. Do you tend to block in certain durations of time that work best for you? I know there's a lot of research on that. And I'm curious where you kind of sit on that. Yeah, absolutely. So you can block your time any way you want. And, and the important thing is to make sure you, you define not only what you will be doing, but by doing so what you will not be doing. So for example, uh, with my daughter, every weekend we spend time together. We have a big old block of four hours and we call this planned spontaneity, right? I don't know exactly what we'll do with the time. Maybe we'll go to the library. Maybe we'll go get an ice cream. I don't know. We're, we'll go to the park. I'm not sure what we're going to do, but I know what I will not be doing. I will not be checking my phone. I will not be on email. I will not be doing the million other things that I could be doing. I will be spending time with my daughter because that's what I said I will do in advance. Yeah, I love that. So you said you're working on something new. I'm curious what the next uh, chapter is for Nir. That's a good question. I'm, I'm still in, it's still in the works. It, uh, typically, I, I, I go about five years between books. That's been my cadence so far. So I'm, I'm uh, uh, still in, in the works. I, I think it's probably going to be something around motivation or, uh, you know, this, one of the frustrations I've had 
with Indistractable is, uh, you know, the techniques have completely changed my life uh, in so many ways. I mean, I'm, I'm 43. I'm in the best shape of my life. Uh, for, the, for the first time, I exercise consistently. I've never had a six pack before. I do now. <laughs> and I'm not saying that because I, I, I'm not bragging. And I, don't, I don't have good genes. I don't even like exercise or I didn't used to like exercise. I was, used to be clinically obese. It's that I do it consistently. Right. That's all it is. It's just consistent forward momentum. Uh, and, and, and so that it's changed my life in, you know, my health, my physical health, my mental health, my relationships, my work, everything has improved. What I'm struggling with, and I, I'd love your insight on this as a, as a coach, is when you, despite showing people the answer, right? Like here it is, right? You're not doing what you say you're going to do. Here, read this. It's all you need to do. Read it and, and start doing at least one thing from each of these four practices we talked about earlier, those four strategies. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how many people don't do it. <laughs> and it, it kind of drives me crazy. I don't, I don't know exactly what to do. So part of me wants to focus on, okay, the motivation barriers, that, that clearly knowledge here is still not enough, even though I'm, I'm literally spelling out here is how to accomplish your dreams, uh, how to make sure you do what you say you're going to do. It's, uh, it's, there's, still, there's still something missing. So I kind of want to dive into the, the science of motivation a little bit more, but that's just... Yeah. Uh, don't hold me to that. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's value there, right? There, there's certainly, if you can help us kind of decode the process of, of unraveling, uh, you know, motivation, that would be amazing. And I think there's certainly a degree of, of um, you know, avoidance of pain, like you've mentioned, because I think a, lo- a lot of people I talk to are just like, I don't, I think the, they, they build it up in their brain to be something big. And they're like, I, I don't know if I have the time or the desire to do that. I think that's one part of it. And I think the other part of it is values, right? Is it's like if you can attach it to something you value tremendously, it sounds like you have a huge amount of connection with your daughter. You value her, her, your relationship tremendously. So as soon as you start to attach this this desired outcome with or this desired action, maybe with your uh, you know with your relationship with your daughter, if you go, hey, this will positively contribute to that. Your brain starts to link up. In my in my experience, your brain starts to link up. Oh, this is a good thing. I'm going to do more of this. Like an example being training and health with. You know, being a better dad or making more money or, you know, you have to just draw the correlation in people's brains and it starts to click for them. And as you know, it needs to be daily. It needs to be consistent. They need to intentionally become consciously aware in the beginning of the connection between those things. And it's like every single day, there's a reminder either for me or from them that these things need to be connected in your brain. And then eventually you start to realize like, oh gosh, yes, I see the benefit of, of this desired or this task that I've been trying to, to follow through on and how it does benefit me in this way. And then I yeah. find it tends to work, uh, tends to follow through if you connect the values to the action. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a big part of uh, what I talk about in Distractable in, 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 I call it turning your values into time. That in order to time box your calendar, you start with your values and you, I give these three life domains of you, your relationship, and then finally your work. And you turn those values into time. You literally say, okay, how, uh, well, let's start with the definition of values. My definition of values are attributes of the person you want to become, right? Values are attributes of the person you want to become. So you have to ask yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their time on themselves, right? If you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of others, you can't make the world better. You have to put that time in your calendar first, time for exercise, time for proper rest, proper nutrition. Where does that fit in your calendar? Not just on your to-do list, because that's going to sabotage you. It has to be on a calendar. And then your relationships and then your work life. So that th- that that is ha- actually how we make that time box calendar. And I think it's, it's incredibly effective. Um, you know, once people take these steps, once they make a time box calendar based on their values, it's like you can't get them to stop doing it. They, it's, it's so transformational. 
the, the, the thing I have trouble with is, is getting people over the hump in the first place. And this is, I think, where coaching can make a huge, huge difference. You know, if, if, if there was a network of coaches out there who were indistractable coaches and would just sit down with people for like 30 minutes, right? And say, okay, let's talk about your values and let's talk about how you can turn your values into time. Here's the, your calendar. Here's your week ahead, right? You've got seven days in the week ahead. How would the person you want to become spend their time? And what this does, what's so amazing about this process is that once you give people a schedule to follow, you relieve them of so much thinking, right? Because what people tend to do today without a schedule is that they default to telling, to letting other people tell them what to do, right? They go to their email inbox. I don't know what to do. Okay. My inbox will tell me. I don't know what to do. Okay. My to-do list will tell me. I don't know what to do. Well, I'll, I'll go to this meeting or check in with a, a colleague. They'll, they'll tell me what to do. As opposed to when you decide in advance what you want to do with your time, you don't have to ask anybody or anything. You just look at the schedule because you define how you spend your time. So no doubt, I mean, I'm not the only one who says this. This is, you know, I didn't invent time boxing. It's been around for a very long time and it really works if you can get people to set that schedule. <laughs> That's the tough part. Yeah, is that like a once a week Sunday type thing? You plan your week? For me, it is, exactly. So every Sunday night, uh, I have time in my schedule to plan my schedule. <laughs> and it takes me, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, it takes me maybe 10 minutes that would be pushing it because I've done it so much now that, you know, it's not, the, the idea is that you don't set your schedule and forget it forever. No, you adjust it from week to week. So, okay, you know what? I didn't really spend enough time doing this. I want more time there, less time there. And you're making that adjustment. But once you've done it once, it's super easy, especially if you use, you know, technology today, like, you know, Google Calendar, it's super easy to make small adjustments here and there. That was my question, actually. Do you tend to use a digital calendar or a written calendar? Or what's your, your resource? Yeah, I, I just use Google Calendar because you can make reoccurring appointments. So I just fill in, you know, on my entire calendar based on uh, my values with those three life domains. And then I can make small adjustments, uh, you know, every week. If, if, you know, for example, let's say I really need to take a meeting and that would have cut into my writing time. No problem. I'll just move my writing time to a different time that day. What's important here to emphasize is that while you can change your calendar for the future, you never want to change your time box calendar in the present moment. Okay, that's a, that would defeat the purpose. So once the day starts, you follow the plan. And if you go off track, that's okay. You're going to learn from it because the difference between a distractible person and an indistractable person is that a distractible person keeps making the same mistakes over and over again. They don't learn why they got distracted. So Poelo Coelho has a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. So how many times can we complain about the same freaking things distracting us before we say, okay, enough, I'm going to do something about it. So yeah. if you let yourself fall off that, that, that off track, off your plan, that's okay. As long as you learn from it, as long as you say, wait a minute, there's only three reasons I can get distracted for every distraction. It's either an external trigger, an internal trigger, or a planning problem. So an indistractable person looks at that distraction and says, okay, you got me once, but you're not going to get me again. How can I take steps today? to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. And they make small adjustments to make sure that when that distraction rears its ugly head next time, they have a plan in place. I love that, Aaron. The three boxes that you're time boxing, again, is just, is it you, your relationship and work? Or is there other stuff that- That's right. That's it. Yeah, you, your relationship work. And work, there's uh, two types of work, re reactive work and reflective work. So reactive work is, you know, reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to meetings. Th that's how people, how low performers spend their day. They just react to stuff all day. High performers make at least some time for what we call reflective work, right? So that's the thinking, the planning, the strategizing. You've got to make time for that without distraction or what will happen is you'll run real fast in the wrong direction. 
So at least some part of your day, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe an hour, has to be reserved for that reflective work time. Mir, I'm incredibly grateful for you making the time to join us today and share this wisdom. Do you have a place that you'd like to send our listeners to learn more from you? Sure. Thank you so much. So if you go to nearandfar.com, near is spelled like my first name. So that's N-I-R and far.com. That's my blog. And if you want to download a complimentary workbook, uh, we didn't put it in the final edition of the book because it got too long, but uh, you can have it for free at indistractable.com. That's spelled I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable. Thank you so much, Nia. I really appreciate it. Uh, again, I suggest everyone listening get out and get this book, and I'm sure you did a great job uh, advising them or at least directing them that way today. So thank you again. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. That's a wrap, ladies and gents, boys and girls. Thank you so much for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Near, uh, N-I-R and far, F-A-R dot com to explore more of the amazing information from our guest today, Nir Ayal. Nir, thank you so much for joining us. That was truly eye-opening. I've been a massive fan of Nir for, gosh, probably coming up on four years now uh, when I first read the book Hooked and uh, tried to understand ultimately what these social media companies are doing and able to do and how they're attempting to control behavior for better or for worse, right? It's happening. You need to know what's happening and uh, you can decide to take your stance on however it works. I think there can definitely be a positive to social media and certainly they can be negative, but it's just how you navigate it as near so eloquently uh, describes today. So thank you guys for joining me. Thank you to realmushrooms.com for being the sponsor of the show. Thank you very much to magnesiumbreakthrough.com, which is ultimately our great friend by optimizers for providing the highest quality magnesium, seven different chelates to help you optimize your body, to decrease stress, to improve sleep, and improve over 700 different biochemical processes in the body that are dependent on magnesium. Head over to magnesiumbreakthrough.com slash muscle intelligence, or just go over to magnesiumbreakthrough.com and use the code muscle at checkout to get hooked up with 10% off, guys. And as always, if you're enjoying the show, if you're someone who likes to help other people, who wants to see the people around you being lifted up and living their greatest life in a body they love, share this podcast with at least one person you know and love. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.